The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I would have these dreams where I'd have this like sheer panic. I would get to like a cliff or like a drop off and I would like look down and it would be this far drop. And then I would jump, I would always jump. And literally right before I would hit the ground, I would just be like, I have a theory. You don't usually become a professional fighter because your life's been perfect. When a situation arises that's fight or flight, most of us take off running. So what makes people choose to stand their ground and fight? Usually, some challenge, maybe family struggles, difficult conditions, loss of a loved one, or even just personal anguish. Something made them learn how to fight. Maybe then they started training, and then after years of staring down challenges, absorbing endless physical punishment, putting aside personal risk and unthinkable pain, they kept doing it. Why? And what can people like you and I learn from them? In this series, we hope to bring you the answer to those questions, because oftentimes it's the battles that take place outside of the octagon that creates the fighters we love to see performing within it. I'm Megno Levy. I've spent the past decade covering UFC fights all over the world. During that time, I've met hundreds of fighters whose stories have inspired me, surprised me, and quite frankly, flat out amazed me. You'll be hearing directly from fighters for the majority of this show. I'll be here to help move the story along and ask some questions I think you might have as a listener. So let's get to it. This is Becoming a Fighter. If you've watched Ian Heinisch fight, you know that he's risen to the top of the UFC rankings quickly, combining ruthless knockout power with top-notch wrestling. Oh, Ian Heinisch! Wow! Powerful elbows! My goodness! From Ian the Hurricane Heinisch! This guy's story is just incredible. Declared the winner by GKO! We've been having some storms here in Vegas, but tonight there was for sure a hurricane. Ian the Hurricane I took the long road here. I've been through so much adversity. I feel like it's time. God has a purpose for me, and this is my destiny. If that's all you really know about Ian, you're missing out. 
sir, you have no bail and you're going to Rikers Island. So I get to the Canary Islands. Once I was in Amsterdam, I remember sleeping in these hostels. I was about like 13 when I first smoked weed. Hey, I moved to Vancouver, Canada. I got a DUI. Just didn't show up in court. Just stopped going to probation. Get transported to the jail. Oh, I'm in prison now. Ian's journey from prison inmate to top-ranked UFC fighter is one that has always fascinated me. It seems impossible that the circumstances he lived through could forge a professional athlete, let alone a great one. Ian's best days in the UFC are still ahead of him, but given where he's been in life, how could you have planned for that? I was curious if he always believed he would make it here. Did he have a natural, unfailing belief in himself? Did he always see himself becoming a fighter? Even in rehab? Even in prison? How did he become one of the few who managed to navigate out of self-destructive patterns? Not only to survive, but to become a ranked UFC fighter. Let's find out. Ian Heinisch grew up outside of Denver. He was a super energetic kid, and that energy would get him into trouble at school. But it also made him a special athlete. I was driving home from soccer practice with my dad and a buddy. And we were like, Dad, take us to Jamba Juice. And he's like, I'll only take you if you join the wrestling team. That's how the wrestling all started. Started wrestling at age 11. My first year of wrestling didn't place at a single tournament. Almost didn't win a single match. And I was like super determined. And I was like, Dad, I'm going to be good at this. The next year, my summer, I went from camp to camp to camp all over the country. People were telling me you were kind of old to start wrestling because most wrestlers started like five, six but I, I made up with it by training harder than them, training more consistent than them, and just I had the will to want it. Ian's will to win led him to take home many national-level wrestling titles, despite his late start in the sport. Even from a young age, it was clear he had a gift. But that energetic athlete was struggling in school in ways that foreshadowed much bigger issues he would face later in life. School was always kind of like a hard thing for me. It's not that I wasn't like smart or I couldn't pick it up. It just was, I just had like crazy amounts of ADD. In this time, you know, they prescribed me a pretty high dosage of Adderall XR. And, and that's kind of when the addiction problem started, I would say. I would go to the doctor. I'd be like, yeah, it's not working. Can you give me some more? Or I would say it would work in the morning. And then by the end of the day, it would wear off. So Next thing you know, they've upped my dosage. I got, I'm taking 40 milligrams of Adderall XR on a daily basis, which is an insane amount. You're basically taking meth in a pill. Basically, it's amphetamine. By this time, I'm starting to experiment with, I'm smoking weed. I'm starting to do coke. I'm drinking heavily. I would say I was about like 13 when I first smoked weed. But when I first did coke, I was about 15. And then eventually I started like selling in small amounts. Like I kind of, was the start of like my business career in that, in that industry. When Ian told me he started doing drugs that young, I was shocked. You would think that being a teenage drug dealer while battling addiction himself would prevent Ian from being a top-level wrestler. For better or worse, it didn't. My drug dealing would always fund my addiction. Like addiction was the core of all of this, like, and it plagued my family. My dad's been to rehab. My uncle's been to rehab. My cousin's been to rehab. I got into high school freshman year, wrestled at 152. Everyone in my weight class was seniors. Took second at state my freshman year, my sophomore year. Pinned my way through state. And then same thing, junior year. So 
at this point, I'm drinking heavily, I'm drugging, and I'm selling, and I'm wrestling, and I'm trying to balance everything, you know? So I remember it was it was the day before a tournament. I'm driving home from a buddy's house. I think I've drank like two bottles of Southern Comfort, probably done some coke. And apparently I just fell asleep. And I woke up hearing my tires spinning because it was snowy out. And I remember I hit this like snowbank and my foot was still on the gas. So the tires were just spinning out. And I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, like, and I like looked out and I missed the tree by like a foot on this side and I missed the sign by like even less than a foot. I got to my parents' house. I was very belligerent, punched holes in the garage. I was so angry and I passed out on the on the couch with all my same clothes on, mud all over them. And my parents like coming to wake me up the next morning for a wrestling tournament. They're like shaking me like, Ian, Ian. And like, I, nothing could wake me up. They call my head wrestling coach, Tim Ottman. He comes driving to my house. Everyone's waiting for me. And he walks in the room and he's like, Ian. And I just like hopped up. I don't know. There's just something about hearing your wrestling coach and got in the car, like snored the whole way to the tournament. Like got out, was like, hey, what's up, guys? Like still completely wasted from the night before. Everyone was all mad at me. Somehow made weight. And I ended up winning the first match by like eight points or something and then pinning my way through the tournament. So this kind of enabled my behavior. My dad was really upset that I won it because I could be like, oh, I can party and still beat these guys. Ian was just too good. So he learned the wrong lesson. The fact that he was able to win wrestling matches while his life spun out of control only enabled the destructive behavior further. You just kind of get deeper and deeper and deeper, and you you constantly have this voice in your head giving yourself excuses. Well, I'm just going to drink today because of this. Well, I've been good for a day or two, so I, I'm able to have this. It's like this vicious cycle of like feeling like crap and quitting for a few days, and then once you start to feel good, you kind of reward yourself with that poison that made you feel like crap. And then you go back and it's just this constant cycle. So I would say a lot of it was, I didn't realize how deep I was. My parents just thought I was headed for destruction of killing myself or killing someone else. Ian's parents saw the path he was headed down and tried their best to intervene. They sent him to rehab, but it didn't stick. He eventually got back to partying and selling drugs and it caught up with him and he was kicked out of school. So, of course, what am I going to do? I'm going to go back home and I'm going to keep partying, you know? Ian had one last chance to still go to college, wrestling at Senior Nationals. Placing in that tournament would all but guarantee him a college wrestling scholarship. His girlfriend at the time offered to pay for a hotel room in Virginia Beach so he could compete and hopefully turn things around. But as so often was the case with Ian, trouble found him even when he wasn't looking for it. This time, trouble was literally next door. The next morning is weigh-ins and I hear this guy like cutting up lines next door and I'm like drinking a beer and I'm like, I'll just go over there for a minute. I go over there, sneak over there. I do a bunch of coke. I drink a bunch of beer with him. I'm like, I gotta go. Wake up the next morning feeling so horrible about myself. I'm like, why would I do that? Like, just filled with regret. Like, I could have missed weight easily, but I I didn't. And I just remember in my mind, I was like, I'm going to beat these guys. Like, I don't care. Just be, like, ready, like, dialed in. 
won my first uh, two matches. Then I wrestled the guy who um, actually won the tournament, lost to him by a point, wrestled eight matches back to come and take fourth. I just like pulled it out with like pure will. It's almost mind blowing to hear how much success you had with the amount of extracurriculars you're doing. I don't know. I just, I had the, the talent and I just, it was a mindset really. I just remembered, I always tell myself, if you party, you pay. So like every time I would party, I would like torture myself in training even harder. If I didn't go through what I went through and getting a little bit of success and money right now in, in the UFC, I think I could have maybe went down that wrong path now. But since I've already been down that wrong path, I'm like, there's no way I would ever even look down that wrong path anymore. So it's kind of a good thing. After his fourth place finish at nationals, Northern Idaho College decided to give Ian a full scholarship. Finally, he got a good break. So this was one of the many opportunities I blew just with addiction. Just We just drank and wrestled and we never really went to school. But school just wasn't for Ian. He decided to move back in with his mom. Now this was 2008. This was the height of the financial crisis. The monetary strain on his family contributed to his parents getting divorced and that resulted in another loss of structure in Ian's life. He was headed down a very bad path at home. He found himself on the run from police, even hiding in trees to avoid getting arrested at times. So when an old girlfriend asked him if he wanted to move to Vancouver, he didn't think twice. Ian quickly fell in love with the city of Vancouver. The girlfriend? Yeah, not so much. He quickly started dating a different woman who he met selling gas door to door. She was 37, he was 19. Yes, you heard that right. Then, one night at her apartment, things got really scary. Disclaimer ahead, we are not glorifying this. He will tell you himself, this was a low point. All of a sudden, I hear this... She like goes to the door, it's her ex-husband, and he's like, what the F are you doing? So he sees me and he's like, come out here, like I'm gonna beat your ass. So I like open the glass, just enough for my fist to fit through. Boom! Because his face was like right there. So I like popped him in the nose, I jumped on him full mouth, and I'm just giving him some slaps because his two kids are sleeping inside and I don't wanna like hurt this guy. I remember I was just like, are you done, bro? Are you done? Wham, like, are you done? And then he grabs me in the balls and like twists. And I just snapped and I like grabbed him by his shirt and just held him off this two-story balcony. And he's looking down and Erica, the girl, she's like, no. And so I like grab him and I like throw him and he flies like Superman, smashes into this table. And I grabbed him by the scruff of his shirt and by like the side of his pants by his belt. And I just took him to the flight of stairs and just boom, head first. So the dude was pretty hurt and he went in his truck and drove away. I moved in with this chick 10 days later. It was twisted, man. This is one of those moments that Ian described almost as if he watched someone else live it because it was such a crazy moment. But as he was telling me, he was so calm and introspective and almost detached from the person he was talking about in that story. Ian went to jail as a result of this incident and was eventually deported from Canada back to the U.S. He was right back where he started before Vancouver, jobless, poor, and lost. So he turned to what he knew to survive. 
He fell back into drug dealing, but a covert sting operation in a Walmart parking lot would be his next serious wake-up call. Even having a gun pointed to his head wouldn't be enough to straighten Ian out. Boom, two SUVs smash into the front of us, smash into the back. The guy, like, I don't even know how he did it. He looked like he jumped out of, like, the sunroof and was, like, on our, like, hood, like, guns at our head. And next thing you know, I just remember having cold steel on my temple, face on the cold pavement, looking at the Walmart sign that was, like, flickering. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to jail for a long time. He did go to jail, and his mom bailed him out after just eight hours behind bars. But while he was arrested, police ransacked the homes of both his father and grandfather, where he had been stashing extra cash and drugs. In the process, police seized almost everything he had. The only thing they didn't find, though, was my $2,500 and a little slipper that I had that I owed someone. Once I got bailed out, I went back to the apartment and I found that $2,500. And in my mind, I was like, all right, this is my ticket out of here. Once I got bailed out, I was like, I ain't going back. Ian viewed this opportunity as his chance to escape, even though he was only out on bail. He had one destination in mind, Amsterdam. I go to the post office. I was like, I need a passport expedited. Got me a passport within a week. And then I remember I just took the phone. I dropped it in the cup of water. And I was like, all right, see you later. I bought a Greyhound ticket from Denver to Chicago. Say goodbye to my family in Indiana. And was just like, yeah, I'm going to go backpack Europe. You know, I just always wanted to do this. Sorry, just slowing us down here for a second. This is Ian deciding he's going to flee the country out on bail. Okay, back to Ian. I remember my family in New York, they were like, no, please don't go. Just turn yourself in because I told them the truth. And I was like, definitely not. I'm 19 years old. Like just the thought of going to prison for four to six years, which is basically crime school in America. I just was not about it. So I hopped on a plane, JFK to Amsterdam with about around $2,500 in my pocket. I was honestly ready to get arrested in the airport. I didn't know what was going to happen when they scanned my passport. But the thing is, you can leave the country. It's coming back when they're going to get you. I think they call that one foreshadowing. Let's think about it for a second. What are the chances that a young man who dropped out of college, who's grappling with an addiction problem, who's fleeing the country on bail, what are the chances that young man would one day become a successful professional athlete? I asked Ian if he ever thought he'd make it as a fighter when he was in the air heading to Europe. I always knew I wanted to become a fighter. I always knew I wanted to be in the UFC. It was just the addiction was in the way. Unfortunately for Ian, his fight against addiction, the law, and himself was only just beginning. Once I was in Amsterdam, I remember sleeping in these hostels. That's when the dreams were going. I would have these dreams where... All of a sudden, I'd be like, I'd have this like sheer panic. And then I'd look behind me and there'd be like red, white and blue, like lights and like almost sirens. And I remember just like full out running. I was like slow running, even though I was like trying to go as fast as I could. And it would always come to a header where I would I would get to like a cliff and I would like look down and it would be this far drop. And then I'd look back and see the people like getting close to me. And in my mind, I thought it was the police, but... You know, I think that was some spiritual stuff. And then I would jump because I remember I was like, didn't want to get caught. And literally right before I would hit the ground, I would just be like, (sighs) 
And I would wake people up sometimes because of how loud I would be. And I'd be in like a full sweat and it would take me like 10, 15 minutes to calm myself down to a point where I could, uh, you know, get relaxed and go back to sleep. Ian kept running, not just in his dreams. He bounced around Europe and made his way from Amsterdam to Bruges to Sheffield in the UK and plenty of places in between. But once he made it to Tenerife, a Spanish island that's a popular vacation spot for Europeans, he felt right at home. He quickly got a job at a bar. Here was his salary. Eight drinks during a shift and four drinks after and one euro for everyone he brought in. His whole job was to convince passersby to stop and have a drink at the bar. And the constant flow of booze made Ian a one-man party. And it only worsened his problems with alcohol. He was short on money. He could barely afford to stay in a hostel and found himself sleeping on the beach some nights. One day, an American who frequented the bar offered to give Ian a place to stay. He and his dad provided Ian a bed, warm meals, and even helped him train and sober up. But Ian needed money. And they knew it. About two months into me getting sober and like hitting the gym and living with them, the Cuban father kind of sat me down. He was like, hey, gringo, like you, you like to travel, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, would you want to go make some real money? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, Colombia, gringo, Colombia. And then he like brought me back in and he laid out a a bowl of grapes of like really big grapes. He's like, see if you can swallow one of these. And um, I was able to, and and I was like, all right, let's go. I kind of had an idea that they were in the game because they didn't go to work and they would just meet people all the time and they had money. And so next thing you know, the trip started. We were going to Colombia, Venezuela, Aruba, go down there for a month, stay for three weeks, party. And then the last week, pack all the coke, swallow it, bring it back. Well, I asked Ian how this practice actually works. I'll spare you some of the gory details, but here's a little info I can give you without you needing lawyers or a barf bag. Compress it into like an 8 to 10 gram like ball like this. Put a plastic bag around it. You take electric tape and then you would sometimes we would drop it in like warm water. So it would, like the adhesive would like come together and then we would drop it in surgical gloves. And then they, the Colombians are like, this is a special piece of paper. It would be this like real shiny reflective paper. And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, this is for if you go through the x-ray. I mean, if it breaks, you're done. Like instantly, you'll just seize. So how real was the fear of this? Or was there any, did you not even care? There was a real fear of it, especially the first time. Cause I remember we went to the gas station when we got back, when we got back to the house. And I remember like I was in there and I got like real dizzy and I was like, Oh my gosh, it broke. I'm done. I'm done. Like I kept like thinking anytime I felt weird or felt something off, I was like, this is it. This is it. Somehow Ian kept making trips with drugs in his system and getting away with it. It was just like his wrestling days. Getting away with it was the whole problem because that thrilled Ian the most. That's one of the feelings that I could describe as like winning a big fight in the UFC. Like as far as an adrenaline dump, like, wow. It was definitely a feeling of like being invincible, like untouchable. Because I was like, what are they going to do? And we used to wait every three months before we take another trip. Now we're doing it every month. We landed in Tenerife. I get in, I go through the customs. They're like, come with us. They pull me in the office. They've done this once before, so I wasn't too worried. 
And they were like, all right, you're going to go to the x-ray. So we go in there, this beautiful Spanish lady, she's like, you have drugs in your intestines. What is it? Heroin? Cocaine? And I'm looking at the x-ray and I can barely see like two little balls. She's like, no, it's for sure. And I was like, nah, I had some Chinese food. And they were all like, they all like kind of like chuckled and they're like, shut up. They're like, Cayete gringo. And they like slapped the handcuffs on. They gave us this laxative. It was terrible. Like they wouldn't let us eat. Like I was like to the point where I would stand up. It felt like I was cutting weight. Like I almost passed out. Finally got all the drugs out of us, get transported to the jail. They take me to the prison and they literally, I just hear alarms going off, people screaming in Spanish. Anne's fear of getting caught had come true. The wrestling prodigy from Parker, Colorado was now facing three and a half years in a Spanish prison. You think about your entire life, like what's brought you here. And I've never got really a chance to do that because I never slowed down enough. It really made me like understand to the point, like you just keep like remembering like all the stuff you did. And it, was, it just like literally makes you like twitch and like shake, like, because it's just like you did so much bad stuff that's not in your character. Just chasing this addiction and just being under the influence all the time. And that was a huge epiphany for me. Ian eventually found something he could latch on to in order to get through the days. It was his old standby, wrestling. They gave us opportunity to do stuff. I joined the kickboxing program. Then I started taking Spanish classes. Then I started going to church every Sunday. Then I even saw, which I forgot, I was doing alcohol classes. So there was a sense of me really wanting change and like, It was probably the worst thing that ever happened to me at the time, but it was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Like I felt, you know, being able to really just like be taken out of my environment and being like sober. So that's actually when the dreams would stop. It almost gave me comfort to wake up and I'd be like, I'd be running and then I would do the jump thing and then I would almost hit and I would like, and like, and then I would be like, oh, I'm here. Okay. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm in prison now. So now, like, I don't have to worry anymore about running. Like, running was gone. And, like, I felt like God was, like, just, like, knocking on the door, just trying to get my attention. In the ultimate irony, it took until Ian landed in prison for him to find himself free. Free of temptations, free from his cycle of addiction, and free from distractions. He was now able to actually train to be a fighter. And in one of the luckiest breaks of Ian's life, the prison he inhabited had a group that helped inmates train in a wrestling-focused martial art native to the region called Lucha Canaria. It's best out of three. You wear a gi-type thing. You roll up the pants. You're in a gladiator pit with sand. Once you eliminate the person, you go to the next. But whoever's team is last left with people, that's the winner of it. So it's kind of like a wrestling team sport. It was very cool and interesting to me. And it was kind of cool to have Juan Espino, who was like the best to ever do it, who's also a UFC fighter, have his dad as our coach in there. Of Ian's past and future opponents, his toughest match might have been one of his fellow inmates. 
This is when I met this crazy American named Blair, Holton Blair, and we called him Chicago. And this dude was wild. Like I could beat him in wrestling, but in the cell, he would crush me. So we excelled at this wrestling thing. We were just beating all these guys in the prison and they brought in a professional team off the streets. And we actually, we beat that team. So the president of the Federation wrote the warden a letter and said, keep these two American guys on the island because we're going to sign them when they get out. So in my mind, I'm like, this might be a career. Like, I don't know. Like, maybe I'll stay here and do this. Like, who knows? Ian was starting to imagine a career as a fighter. He was clean. He was training. His mind was clear. Prison's never comfortable, but as far as prisons go, that was probably like the the best time and the best people were around me. And it just worked out so perfect. Like there was this guy, Aron, and he was a great kickboxer. And there was this guy, Moy, and he was the K-1 Spanish champ. And the guy's like, look, I'll teach you striking. You teach me wrestling because he wanted to do MMA. And so we kind of had this great relationship where we were helping each other. And the day he got released came in this guy who lived in Thailand for eight years, who was a Muay Thai guy. So like, I didn't miss a single day of training. It was so meant to be. And I just felt like God calling on my heart. Are you watching UFCs at this time or what's happening in the sport? Are those things on your radar? I just remember like being like, wait till I get out, like wait till these middleweights see me. They're going to be like, where did this guy come from? And I remember I had a magazine. It was a fighters only magazine. And I just like hang pictures on my wall and just like, it showed like the crowd and like, it was like, it was like 70,000 people somewhere in Canada. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like, that's amazing. Like that's going to be me someday. And like looking at pictures of like Dana White, Sean Shelby, and like, these are the guys I need to know. These are the ones I need to find. Things were going well for Ian in Spanish prison, which is a weird thing to say. But you could probably guess Ian's journey would not be a straight line from here. Eventually, he got transferred to another jail. No more Lucha Canaria. Ian's hope and sense of purpose were shattered. Things got more challenging right away. I get put in two weeks isolation. And that's when I kind of had a spiritual awakening. You know, God really found me. When you're alone, I mean, after a while, you kind of like your personality splits off into two, like good and bad. And you're like talking to yourself a lot. You start to count every crack in the room. I mean, I was rolling up the bed and like doing like boxing it. And then I would like do yoga. And like I was to the point where I would like sleep for two hours, be awake for four or like no matter what time of day it was. And like you're hearing other people freak out, too, you know. So I think it's like day 12 or something and I'm just losing it because there's nothing to do. There's no one to talk to. And, and I just like hit my knees and I'm like, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. Like, just please, like anything. So I had a Bible, but it was in Spanish and I had a dictionary, English, Spanish translation. I opened a Genesis and I just start reading. And somehow I read Spanish like almost perfect. And I could, I mean, I could speak a little bit by them, but to read Spanish, especially like scripture from the Bible, it's hard for me to sometimes read scripture in English. And I just start reading and God's just speaking to my heart and just telling me like, I've been searching for you. Like, I want to cure you of your addiction. I want you to have this life of significance. I want you to make disciples. Like all these things are going. And I just felt like the most like, fire in my chest like the holy spirit and it just like brought like i just like lost it like tears to my eyes and i felt the most comfort that i have felt in like years and that's why my nickname comes from the hurricane because there's a boxer named reuben carter 
So I, I relate a lot to that. And obviously he was he did two years in prison in the beginning and came out and was a world champ. And that's where my destiny's going. He boxed and lifted weights three hours a day with fellow prisoners. The prison eventually allowed Ian to run his own MMA class. He continued to train up until his release. Now, speaking of that release, um, when was that going to happen? They were really good with the mental warfare. Like they would send you a letter and, and you, they would be like, oh, you're getting out soon. And then you wouldn't hear nothing for three months. And so I got to a point where I was like, I just don't care anymore. I really don't like, and they were like, all right, you're not going to get out. Or and I was like, good, I'll just keep training. I don't care. And then that's when they sent me this paper. They said, all right, you've done two and a half years. You can get out uh, a, a quarter of your sentence cut off if you don't come to Spain for five years, like you're banned from Spain. Ian was finally out of Spanish prison after almost three years. He was headed back to America. This is great news, right? So they let me get on the plane. They took my cuffs off. They gave the passport to the flight attendant and they said, give this to the American when you land in America. And I was free for the first time in two and a half years. But we're back in New York. I, I get in the line and I'm like, oh my gosh, here we go. And so they scan my passport and like, sir, how long have you been out the country? And I was like, um, a while. And she's like, well, what's a while? And I was like, five years. And she's like, come with me. And I was like, oh gosh. That flight from Spain to New York was the last taste of freedom Ian would have for a while. He spent three days sleeping on the floor of a Jamaica Queens jailhouse and watched other prisoners come and go as he waited for his court hearing. Compared to Spanish prison, this wasn't so bad. Yet. The court says, sir, you have no bail and you're going to Rikers Island. And I was like, okay, what's that? And my lawyer, my public defender pulls me aside and she's like, you have to go to protect custody. And I was like, no, I was like, I've just did two and a half years in prison. Like, I'm not going to punk city. I had this attitude, like, throw me at the wolves, I'll lead the pack. And all of a sudden they're driving me and it's this long bridge. And I'm like, whoa, this is actually an island. And I'm like, wow. And then it's like a huge wall with barbed wire. And you like go through one door, then another, then another. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, are we in Alcatraz or what? Like, and I didn't know, they were sending me to maximum security because I was a fugitive. And I was like walking and the guard's walking me and he's like, man, you must be one bad white boy. And I was like, why is that? And he's like, i never seen one of you in this wing. And I was like, you damn right I am. <laughs> and like in my stomach, I was like, oh no. And then it came to lunchtime. And that's always a dangerous time because everyone sits down, they have their groups. And finally, one of the, the head of this gang, he looks at me, his name was Fingers, because he was actually missing some fingers. And he was like, hey, man, hey, Gringo. He's like, come sit with us. Come sit with us. And I was like, oh, thank God. Because I knew if they saw me by myself, it was going to be problems. And I always remember, like, you strong, man, but a lone wolf gets eaten in here. Fingers helped Ian a few times in prison. 
including one time when he may have saved Ian's life. One of the leaders of the other gang, he goes, let me use your phone. And I was like, nobody's using nothing. Like, I just had a bad attitude. I was in a bad mood. And he goes, oh, really? He goes, meet me in the back. And this dude's a big dude. So I go in the back. I'm like, get ready to scrap this dude. And all of a sudden, he pulls out this rusty knife. And luckily, my boy Chicago taught me a few tricks of the trade. And I'm like, no, man, please don't hurt me. I don't want you to... uh." I just like saw his chin and just turned over the right and he just goes face down like snoring and all his brothers come running up and I'm like oh my gosh so I rip my shirt off and I wrap it around my hand to grab knives because I know they're coming with knives and I'm like oh my god they're gonna stab me from every angle like this is it and I remember three little Puerto Rican dudes just walk in front of me and they're like yo you mess with white boy you mess with us homie he got heart he with us and I was just like oh Thank you, God. And Fingers, you know, he's like, we like you, white boy, but you ain't one of us for real. So we can't protect you anymore. They got an SOS on you. I was like, what does an SOS mean? And he was like, stab on sight. And I like call the guard over and he's like, what? And I was like, man, these guys want to kill me up in here. I got to go like right now, protect custody, like take me out of here. And I'll never forget it. He was like, F you, white boy. Boom, and like land the door in my face. So obviously these gang members already talked to the guards and told them, keep them in here because tomorrow morning we're going to get him. And so I'm up all night praying. I'm like, God, get me out of here. Like, protect me. And uh, literally it was five o'clock in the morning. Doors open at 6.30. Two big football player looking dudes came to my cell. They say, Heinish, U.S. Marshal, we're here to pick you up. And I was like, oh. I got to Jefferson County, Colorado, 2014 Valentine's Day. My mom bailed me out again, and I was free for the first time in about two and a half years. Ian was once again back at square one. He was broke, couldn't legally drive, and was living with his dad. All he could think about was how to find an MMA gym. That is when he discovered Factory X in Denver. The gym's owner, Mark Montoya, made an impression on Ian right away. Mark sat me down, was real stern with me. He was definitely like the father figure, the mentor that I needed at the time. And so I started training there full time. It wasn't long before Ian started tearing up the local circuit, finishing all four of his first amateur MMA fights via first round knockout. Hey, thanks, Chicago. But Ian's toughest opponent was always himself. And that remained true, even as he was becoming a rising star in mixed martial arts. I think I'm 8-0. And they go, you win this fight, you're going to the UFC. So everything is coming to a head. Like, all of a sudden, I start to kind of lose my faith a little bit. I tore my LCL, went to the doctor. They gave me Percocet. Started taking some painkillers. And that's when I got completely hooked again. I'll buy an Oxy off the street. After my fights, I would go down to Mexico to celebrate and I would go to the pharmacy and buy painkillers over the counter. And I always just had like these excuses in my head, like, hey, um, you need this. 
I'm going to church on Saturday. I'm going to Bible study on Sunday. I'm being good till about Wednesday. And then I'm doing drugs and then painkillers. And then I feel totally bad. And then I go back to church. So it's just, it's this like terrible cycle that I'm not, I still don't want to let this area go of my life. Ian continued this cycle up to fight night. It was familiar, the same cycle of fighting his opponents in the cage and fighting his addiction on his own. Only this time, the stakes were higher than ever. His opportunity to fight in the UFC was on the line. Ian was about to find out if all the pain, all the sacrifice, all the trouble would finally pay off. So I showed up at this fight, went in there, tried to force a crazy takedown, ended up getting in a, like a arm triangle, kicked out of it, landed on top of the guy in his guard, and he just locked me in. And just like that, Ian's undefeated record was no more. He took it hard. All fighters know the first loss you ever take is the hardest. It really messes with you. And now I'm still having my addiction problems, still taking some Tramadol. So I go to church and it's Saturday service and we get there and they're like, all right, we're doing a baptism. I had no idea. And I just felt it on my heart. Like, you got to do this. You have to do this. And they're like, anyone who wants to come who hasn't get baptized right now. And I was like, all right, I'll come tomorrow. So that night I completely binged out. I did like 220 milligrams of Oxy. I was doing Adderall and I was like to the point where I was like, I felt so crappy. And like, I literally went up to my roommates like medicine cabinet because I knew they had Valium there. And I was like, I just want to take a Valium and go to sleep. And then I was like, what are you doing? Like you're digging through your roommate's medicine cabinet. Like felt like such a, like a junkie. And then like went to sleep next day, went there, got baptized. When I walked in the water, I swear it looked clear, completely clear, like, and I was going to, like, do this whole, like, yeah, after it was a big crowd there. I'm obviously no stranger to, like, you know, getting the crowd hyped. But I went in there. I got out of the water. I, like, was, like, rocked. I looked back, and the water looked black to me. And, and I felt like God was saying, that's your addiction. And I went home that night, and I was like, oh, I need to take a vitamin or something. And I walked to the cabinet and I opened it and a bag full of Valium came out. The same cabinet I was digging for the other night. It was like the devil trying to tempt me like, here you go. Now that you don't want it, here it is. And I was like, no. And I like turned it away, like put it back in there. But I'm praying to God, God, why are you doing this to me? Like I did what you wanted. I'm not doing any more drugs. Like, and I feel like, and it was like one of the only times I've heard God audibly after a month, he said, this is the feeling you never want. And I literally felt the feeling like lift the fog from my face and I was clear-headed and I was like this is the feeling I always want and two years later after that I was top 10 in the UFC got my UFC contract married bought a house and I'm a tax-paying man so just the blessings that God brought for me full submission and now I my addiction is fully healed like I just don't think about it anymore like I just would never do it like pills were my downfall and I could never do that anymore. Ian says he left behind his old life in that water. It's easy to see why. He responded to that first loss with back-to-back first-round knockouts. That hot streak earned him a spot on Dana White's Contender Series. From Ian the Hurricane Heinish gets the biggest win of his career. You could see Dana mouthing, wow. And Heinish is just saying, hey, just in case you were wondering, I'm ready. 
Then he won his first two fights in the UFC against veteran Cesar Fajeda and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu specialist Antonio Carlos Jr. Your winner by unanimous decision, the Hurricane After two losses to top-ranked fighters Derek Brunson and Omari Akhmedov, Ian won his last fight in June against Gerald Marshart with, you guessed it, a first-round knockout. Early in 2021, Ian will face Kelvin Gastelum in the biggest fight of his career. And after all he has been through, Ian does not take this moment for granted. I still have my ups and downs, my struggles, like they're still there and um obviously lost a few fights in the UFC and then won one and now I'm climbing back in the rankings. The story's not over. The story's still being written and I truly believe I will have that belt. Like I could be like the guy like once I get the belt, be like done. Mission accomplished. Like thank you Jesus. Like that is amazing. I can go public speak around the world. I can open a halfway house because that's always been my dream to give kids an opportunity who get this prison sentence from the age of 18 to 25 that don't have fathers or any mentors. They can go to this program. You're not too old. You're not too far gone. Look at my life. If I can do it, you definitely can. I, I started MMA at 26. And Megan can tell you that's old for some for MMA. Like, can you imagine? Everyone's like doubting me. And, and I just, I, you can't listen to those voices because everyone's going to doubt you. You have to make the decision of what you're going to do with your life. When you align yourself with your goals, your purpose, and Jesus and God, and there's nothing more powerful and nothing can stop you. You know, I'm here for a reason, obviously. I could have died so many times, so many times. So I'm still here and I still have breath in my lungs and I'm going to speak my, my troubles, which is now my testimony. And I hope it affects uh, and pierces the hearts of so many people out there that can make that change. Thank you so much for listening to Becoming a Fighter. We'll be dropping our second episode with Rose Namajunas before the end of the year. Thank you to Ian for telling his story and to you for listening. Ian encourages his fans to reach out to him if they want to talk, so please do so on social media if you feel so inclined. And if you're struggling with addiction, you are not alone. Please visit samhsa.gov for more information. Until next time, I'm Megan Olivi. Thank you so much for listening. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.